0: Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. This is your host, Bernice Heilbrunn, and I'm delighted to be able to share an interview with you today with author Karsten Schapkow. Professor Schapkow is at University of Oklahoma in Norman, usually. Today he's in Germany, and he's taken the time to podcast with us from there. His book is Role Model and Countermodel, The Golden Age of Iberian Jewry and German-Jewish Culture During the Era of Emancipation published in 2016 by Lexington Books. It's a fascinating transnational approach to German Jewry. Dr. Schapkow has some very, very interesting insights to share with us. And without further ado, I'll turn to our interview. Hello, welcome Karsten to New Books in Jewish Studies, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today about the uh, New English translation of your book, Role Model and Countermodel: the Golden Age of Iberian Jewry and German Jewish Culture during the Era of Emancipation. Uh, let, let's start by, uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book.
1: Yes, sure. Uh, First of all, thank you very much for giving me a chance to talk about my book. So, um, many years ago, while working on my master's thesis about the German-Jewish author Ernst Toller, uh, I came across Toller's autobiography, which opened with a reference to Toller's supposedly Sephardic origin when describing the wealth of his Sephardic ancestors during the 18th century when living in the Polish province of Posen. This made me curious, why would an assimilated German Jew like Toller, who was well known as an independent socialist, make reference to his Sephardic descent? Now my interest was sparked, subsequently I wrote a dissertation on the perception of Baruch de Spinoza, another famous Sephardic Jew, in German Jewish culture. And uh, in Spinoza's case, it was um, namely his Sephardic descent that made him appealing for his Jewish but also non-Jewish readers, which made him into the first modern Jew, as uh, Yuval called it. And when I finished my monograph on Spinoza, I decided now would be the right time really to look into the, I mean, complete picture to analyze how... uh, German Jews perceived Sephardic Jewry mainly in Spain during the 19th century, so during the era of emancipation of German Jewry. And that's basically uh, what is discussed in my book, Role Model and Counter Model. Thank you.
0: Um, Okay, could could you start us off uh, then on the substance of your book by describing the period in German Jewish history that's the subject of your study?
1: Mm -hmm. So, basically uh, in my book I Start analyzing or describing the history of the Jews at the end of the 18th century, so before their emancipation, up to the, uh, I mean, the year when German Jews became citizens in the German Empire, which was in 1871. So between these roughly 90 years, there's an ongoing discourse in Jewish and non Jewish culture, if and How Jews could become integrated or assimilated into German majority culture. So that is the framework. And in that framework, German intellectuals at the end of the 18th century, so enlightened, mainly men, are found an ideal uh, situation in Medieval Spain where the Jews in their eyes were integrated and widely accepted and they picked on these examples mainly uh, highly esteemed Sephardic uh, philosophers uh, philosophers such as Maimonides to make sure It had been possible for Jews in the past to be integrated in a non-Jewish majority culture and also remain Jewish. That is very important for the first generation of uh, enlightened Jews in Germany at the end of the 18th century. And they basically focused on these individual characters like Maimonides, uh, Yehuda Halevi, and also Menasseh Ben Israel, I mean, who lived uh, in the Netherlands later.
0: So I, I think you answered the question then about why German Jews were so fascinated by Iberian-Sephardic Jewish history. Um, and You indicate in your preface that it was the fissures within German-Jewish understanding of the past era of Iberian-Sephardic history that played a decisive role. What do you mean by this?
1: Well, I mean, German Jews... Focused on Iberian Sephardic history because they perceived the history of the Jews uh, on the Iberian Peninsula as some kind of a role model that, in particular, speaks to their own situation as being Jewish in Germany at the end of the 18th century. So, Jews in Germany at the end of the 18th century, I mean, eagerly uh, adapted the ideas of the Enlightenment. I mean, they had their own. Enlightenment, the Haskalah, but they also very much uh, went into dialogue with Christians uh, at that time. So, and that was, of course, not ideal, their situation in Germany. They were uh, not integrated, um, they were widely perceived. Uh, as beggar Jews, because the majority of the Jews living in Germany were complete outsiders in an economic perspective, but also in the sense that they were not integrated into the overall society. So very few uh, elite Jews in Germany, so to speak, understood that something has to be changed in order to make Jews better integrated. And so when looking back to Spain, they believed that that actually happened already or in the past in Spain, that was a reality, that all the Jews who lived in Spain were integrated. Of course, that is an idealization uh, of the historic, I mean, reality, but they took that as as a model to basically use for their own purpose as living in Germany and speaking to fellow Jews uh, about the need to become integrated and accepted because... In Spain, it worked out not only for the Jewish community, but also helped Spain as a country, that's always the argument, to flourish. Mm -hmm. And so that is what I mean by, I mean, it's a very ambivalent situation in Germany, and their perception is basically speaking towards this ideal, and they hope that some of the ideal is also reflecting well on their future in Germany. Mm -hmm.
0: That that is so fascinating, and I have to admit, I've used your findings uh, when I teach my classes now because it makes it it makes it so clear, and it seems um, it seems like such a very important point. Um, let me ask you: Did German Jews actually debate and discuss a role model for themselves? And if they did, what did this process look
1: like, and who were the key figures at the beginning? when they started focusing on uh, their own situation, there's some kind of a criticism uh, among the masculine, so the uh, German-Jewish enlightened thinkers and authors who criticized uh, mainly the Jewish educational system in the German-speaking lands. I mean, that's maybe the more precise uh, 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 expression I should use, German-speaking lands, because it also was a debate that took place in, uh, let's say, Uh, Austria. And so they criticized mainly the uh, rabbinical establishment in the German-speaking lands and saw these rabbinical establishment as narrow-minded only focusing on the Talmud and not having a real sense what is going on in the real world. And of course that also speaks to the reality because most of these uh, rabbinical authorities had been trained uh, in Eastern Europe, which back then was the center of traditional uh, Judaism. But for someone who lived uh, at the end of the 18th century and who believed to be enlightened and hoped to become part of the overall German society, it was necessary to develop a new kind of thinking. What is the meaning of being Jewish and also being are somehow attached to the overall development in society. And so the Polish case was not an, a, a model they could rely on. So for them, uh, something else has to be defined. And that basically, and even before the science of Judaism emerged, and that's what is one of the main points in my book, there's a huge debate in uh, Jewish uh, periodicals on these individuals, I just mentioned earlier, like Maimonides, Yehuda HaLevi, Menasseh ben Israel, who uh, were accepted by the overall non-Jewish society because they helped to develop non-Jewish majority society. And that means as, uh, in the Muslim world as well as the Christian world. Well, it always depends on perspective, but that is what these individuals did. And I mean, to be frank... It's a discourse among very few people at the beginning. I mean, at the end of the 18th century. But then it became more uh, explicit, in particular amongst scholars of the science of Judaism, like Leopold Zuns, who really went back to uh, the sources, so to speak, identified the sources, and came across uh, findings where the actual, I mean, where actually Sephardic uh, Jews. Participated in the overall society in Spain, Muslim Spain, Christian Spain, and he compiled these findings. And this is now, I think, the most interesting part of it. Uh, these books were not read by a lot of people. I mean, they are very difficult, very scientific. But from here, uh, other scholars who published also as scholars on Sephardic Jewish history, they also started writing more popular. Uh, descriptions of the topic. Some wrote novels, others basically poems, and always the point in here is uh, once there was a a time when Jews were highly integrated, they participated, they spoke the language of the majority, Arabic or later the uh, Romans vernacular, and that also made them into this point I also focus in the book into uh, Middlemen, yeah, so middlemen between the majority societies, Muslim and Christian, and also uh, towards the Jewish society.
0: Interesting. So they were, uh, l- 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 let me jump to a, a term that you use cultural mediators. I gather from what you just explained, they were cultural mediators between the minority Jewish culture and the majority culture, as well as between the Muslim and the Christian cultures and civilizations. Is is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's how I uh, see it. Of course, many other scholars before me saw it the same way. So uh, Jews were perceived as cultural and intellectual mediators because they were able to speak uh, a variety of languages and also I mean uh used let's say the Arabic language to a degree uh that they also wrote um liturgical uh texts in Arabic and they also uh appreciated Arabic lifestyle. Yeah. So Norman Stillman has coined uh, has uh termed that Focus focus on the uh, Arabic uh, language as linguistic nationalism of the Sephardic Jews, and that's of course something. If we compare one uh, once again with Germany, because that's how I have basically contextualized my book. I do not just analyze the Sephardic history on the Iberian Peninsula, but I see it basically as a mirror to the situation of the Jews in Germany, not only. During the era when these Jews in Germany wrote about medieval Spain, but also in comparison to uh, uh, medieval Jewish life in Ashkenaz, so in the German-speaking lands, because here clearly we do not, we, we clearly can say that the Jews who lived in the Middle Ages in the German-speaking lands did not speak Latin as they did by comparison. They, uh, they spoke Arabic in um, in Muslim Spain, of course. We cannot compare Latin, which is mainly a scholarly language, spoken by very few people, mainly or those of the clergy. But com- we cannot compare it with Arabic, which was an overall, I mean, cultural language. But here is really the reality that for the Jews who lived on the Iberian Peninsula, in the eyes of those who wrote about them in the 19th century, that's an indication for perfect integration. Dress... Language customs were basically adapted, integrated from the uh, Arabic example into the Jewish culture. And, uh, that's one example. But we also find, of course, Jews as mediators in terms of, uh, something which I think is different uh, to Ashkenaz, because in Ashkenaz, there are also, uh, you know, the 18th century, court Jews, very few Jews who had a chance to interact with rulers in the Christian world, but apparently uh, the overall political impact, uh, Sephardic Jews as mediators had in Spain was much larger, so we know that very few of them became ministers, advisors to kings and queens, and that's also the downside of the whole idea, honestly, because Uh, the German Jews in the 19th century, so those who were proponents of the science of Judaism, mainly focused, at the beginning at least, of these charismatic Jewish individuals and did not talk a lot about the overall culture. And to be frank, it's also not so easy to come down with material, primary sources on that subject matter. So in the uh, text I studied, First of all, individuals like my monitors were discussed and analyzed and uh, idealized. And later it a little bit became a little bit more encompassing and talking also about the overall connection of Jews in, um, I mean, in the, uh, Muslim or Christian, um, world uh, on the Iberian Peninsula. So let's. The whole notion of uh, intermediaries, but I very much focus on this idea. This is a clear sign that Jews had been accepted and integrated because they made use of the language. And of course, at the end of the 18th century, Jews living in Germany also thought about uh, the need to completely embrace German as the language of education to become integrated. And that's one of the cards at the end of the 18th century from the Christian side, so mainly from Dorn, who talked about the civic improvement of the Jews, referring to the need of the Jews to speak uh, German and uh, integrate through language.
0: So so linguistics was very important. Uh, and yet uh, the German Jews are looking at a period uh, that saw great assimilation, catastrophe, and even loss mm. when they're looking mm. at the Iberian Peninsula. Yeah. I, I wonder if
1: you might want to address that. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, um, when I studied all this uh, material, um, I mean, usually it's sometimes really troubling to read it because at some point, some of the authors, uh, the German uh, uh, Jewish authors were so fascinated uh, with uh, assimilation, for example, Isaac Marcus Hughes, who really uh, thought when looking back, well, actually, it would have been a great idea if uh, the Jews would have assimilated, and he means converted, to Christianity, because then they would really become part of Spanish society, and also his argument, then if Spanish society would have done that more Cleverly, so to speak, the I mean integration slash conversion. It's really about conversion. Then also Spain would have benefited from that. So this is a little bit troubling if you read that. This whole uh, I mean appreciation of assimilation. But to be fair, there were others like Abraham Geiger, uh, who was also very much uh, interested in having Jews integrated assimilated, but he is, of course, not talking about conversion to Christianity. So we have all kinds of voices in this spectrum in the 19th century. And when it comes to uh, expulsion or oppression, and to be frank, I mean, this golden age uh, did not last longer than uh, maybe 150, 200 years, from 900 up to maybe 1150, 1170 on the Iberian Peninsula. And after that, also under Islam, there were many uh, groups who were very much interested in converting non-Muslims to Islam. So it's not any longer a golden age, but in the perception, uh, we basically see still the focus on it's possible to live together in a non-Jewish majority culture. To some extent, the argument has been made, religion became evil, and Jews were persecuted because of these radical tensions in Islam, but also later uh, in Christianity when the Jews were finally expelled at the end of the 15th century. So sometimes I thought while writing the book, it's also something like a, first of all, it's a monologue. So I think German Jews really hoped to um, create an interest among non-Jews in Germany in the history of the Jews on the Iberian Peninsula, namely the Jews were integrated and they contributed to majority society, but very few non-Jews really went into that conversation which is troubling. It's a kind of a monologue really. Yeah. And then we have also a monologue amongst uh, the Jews who wrote to themselves about this glorious past also to ensure that can also hopefully happen to us. So I'm not talking about expulsion, but hopefully this integration. You are completely right. There's, whenever the expulsion had been discussed in Gratz's work, and Gratz talks about uh, the expulsion. Usually, he points all blame on the clergyman who had a very negative impact on, let's say, uh, Isabella. Uh, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand. Uh So the people, that's what I sense, are uh, described in Gretzen's work as decent. They were not anti-Jewish, but they were basically manipulated by religious fanatics. So it's also an argument that in an enlightened era or post-enlightened era, where Jews hope to live in in Germany, this will never come into being. So, yeah, it's a sign of being aware of religious hatred, but they really believed in the 19th century Germany, um, this cannot happen. I mean, this will never happen. And also, um, I have not uh, discussed that in the English version. We are just uh, discussing in this uh, podcast interview. But in the German version, I have a chapter on Zionists, uh, responses to that, and Zionists, of course, clearly criticized Sephardic Jews for being too much assimilated.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, y- you uh, describe in the book that the Sephardic diaspora continued to model cultural mediation. Mm-hmm. I-, I think you were talking about uh, the Netherlands, Hamburg, and uh, the Ottoman Empire. Can you t- tell us a little about this?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So I found most of the interesting uh, I mean discussions, role model, counter model also reflected in the Sephardic Diaspora. So those Jews who left Spain either directly in 1492, mainly to North Africa and the Ottoman Empire, and those who later in the 17th century went to uh, Amsterdam and Hamburg. Of course the latter ones are uh, already underwent uh, internal transformation, living as Catholics in Spain and to some degree still practising Jewish uh, rituals. And the interesting thing is what I found out in the book is that German Jews became very much aware of this situation and they became also much more self-confident during the 19th century. So keep in mind, there were still not citizens in Germany, not before 1871. But sometimes it appears to the reader, and not just to me, that they had this very uh, strong feeling of being i mean integrated, and they hoped to become integrated by cultural means at some point. So Abraham Geiger for example, uh, criticizes now contemporary Sephardic Jews who lived in Amsterdam, uh, for their, I mean, isolation. So he argues, I mean, usually one might think, I just, uh, reference Geiger, that the Sephardic Jews living in diaspora would now be ideal, uh, leaders to all Jews in Europe. But they didn't do anything to actively get involved in politics in the Netherlands. They just looked back to the past without basically being, I mean, Real active members, I mentioned that already, of society. So he describes them negatively as Spanish Hidalgos or lower noblemen who just sit around and, uh, just, I mean, rot. They are not active anymore. So, and in Gaia's perception, as well as in other, um, uh, individuals' view, the German Jews had replaced the Sephardic Jews to some degree. While living in Germany. And I think the interesting point is that we also have this famous episode when, uh, one of the most eminent, uh, German Jews, Ludwig Philipson, who was also the editor of the General Journal of Judaism, uh, who wrote a lot about Iberian Sephardic history in scholarly journals, but also on a more popular level, uh, really formulated the uh, idea, first of all, and then ultimately petitioned the Spanish government uh, to allow freedom of religion to be introduced again. And i set again in brackets because that didn't exist before that time. And what he meant by that is when freedom of religion is introduced again to Spain, then the Jews would be allowed to settle again in Spain. So he did petition the Spanish government, the Contest. Uh, nothing came really out of that, not during his lifetime, so not in uh, 1854. But it gives you an idea that men like Philipson, who worked together with French uh, Jews, uh, uh, that there's a perception we Jews living in Germany are now in charge of making aware of nations such as Spain that they have a chance to redo history and become also integrated in uh, in uh, in this i mean perception of um being part of enlightened europe i mean that's the argument and also uh, most jews i mean the sources they, they talk about to some extent about Jews and their situation in Germany, but it's mainly about the overall culture. Uh, if Spain would admit Jews again to Spain, that's Philipson's argument, and all, all others followed him, then Spain's economy would uh, become better, and Spain would become uh, uh, I mean, highly uh, accepted country again. So, that is also, I think, for me, it was a very fascinating uh, finding, this, I mean, um, Self confidence and basically writing to a foreign government, so to speak, and telling them what should be changed.
0: Yes, it's quite fascinating. And he was perhaps a hundred, a hundred and fifty years ahead of his time in doing so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Very interesting. And, may,
1: and maybe he's also, I just think about that. I mean, maybe he's also referring to these, uh, I mean, heroes of the Sephardic world uh, that were also perceived as. Uh, middlemen who had a chance to talk to kings and queens and try to, I mean, better the situation of the Jews. So Maybe he's also really seeing himself in line with these uh, Sephardic heroes of the past, but now he's really coming from Germany, and uh, uh, with the help of some French uh, agencies, he was really uh, making this, uh, well, international campaign possible, I mean, that's really how we should term it, I guess.
0: Yes, fascinating. At a time when the Jews in German lands themselves didn't have full citizenship rights, he's petitioning the Spanish Parliament. It's quite amazing.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's really amazing. But I mean, maybe that's how. I mean, sometimes it works that way, I guess. So, uh, but again, I really believe, in particular at the beginning, there is some hope among uh, German Jews to have some kind of a dialogue about the participation of the Jews in. European history and so that also focus on the Spanish example but there is not a real uh, discussion, not a real um, dialogue in that. I mean, even the opposite. I mean, some Christian writers like Fries and Bruce basically uh, understood the Spanish example in their eyes as very strong German nationalistic writers as a proof that the Jews would basically destroy the economy, would destroy the country because they cannot be assimilated. So there's a very Uh, I mean, here debate, I mean, not so much a debate, but basically from these German sources I just mentioned, who argue, no, that's not possible. I mean, uh, Jews cannot become integrated. They cannot contribute. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe something uh, else to be aware of, Um, particularly during the Romantic era. um, The concept of a nation and becoming part of it, becoming integrated based on culture, is significantly changing. And so these. Wonderful words about integration and the idea of becoming integrated. It's really a small gap in history at the end of the 18th century when Dome wrote his piece on the betterment of the Jews. And then after the French Revolution, all these romantic authors, German authors turned to the negative and became very much, I mean, hostile or indifferent towards Jews and the situation of the Jews in Germany. I mean, that is also something to be aware of, I think.
0: Yes, it's very interesting. Um, you've, you've mentioned the monologue that yeah. um, uh, perhaps sadly or tragically was uh, in place instead of a dialogue. Um, and I think uh, you, you begin the book w- with a reference to the Iranian Bergstrasse uh, synagogue, mm. uh, the Neue Synagogue, and uh, perhaps the uh, distinct ways in uh, which uh, Jews and uh, perhaps Christians in Berlin responded to that. Uh, which um, seems perhaps to encapsulate some of what you've just shared with us, where Jews perhaps look to the uh, the, the Moorish aspects of the the synagogue architecture as a, yeah. an exemplar, and, and I should let you explain it instead of my doing it. Uh, why don't you share that for
1: our listeners? Uh, exactly. I mean, when the uh, new synagogue at Berlin, langenburg uh, Straße was, um, I mean, built... I mean, up to this day, uh, it's clearly uh, a a monument that is uh, directly reflecting this uh, Moorish uh, influence, and um, it was, I mean, a sign for Jews living in Germany, first of all, that they proudly perceive themselves, I mean, as Jews living in uh, Germany, but they choose, I mean, a a style, architectural style, for their Synagogue that of, of course is, I mean, very much different from, I mean, let's say the Gothic style that existed uh, before that among uh, synagogues being built uh, in Germany. And we find, I mean, these synagogues even are in, in the United States. So there's some kind of a, a universal interest in the Sephardic role model also when pointing on the, um, uh, on the uh, synagogue. So I didn't touch too much uh, on the synagogue. I mean, John Ephraim in his recent book focused on the synagogues much more than I do. I was more interested in the political debate on what basically emerged as an intellectual uh, idea and became a much more powerful, I mean, discussion in terms of what is a good, valid integration and what should be uh, uh, avoided. But it's definitely uh, interesting that uh, there is seemingly more interest in this this research uh, on a broader level. And I think. You can only understand, I mean, my expertise is mainly on on German Jewish history. You can only understand German uh, Jewish history if you see that these German Jewish authors, mainly at the end of the 18th, and then during the 19th century, these were highly trained individuals, not all of them, but many. So they had access to all kinds of sources, uh, rabbinical sources, uh, liturgical writings. And then they combined it with this new interest in historiography on the subject matter. And uh, yes, they spoke to their situation uh, in Germany, but one really has to keep in mind these transnational uh, aspect. And I think these transnational aspects were already discussed in scholarship before, uh, when talking about Eastern European Jews and their role on, I mean, their situation or their perception among German speaking Jews. I mean, there are many books on that subject matter. But again, I think it's maybe an interesting shift and also, and there should be more scholarship, I think, uh, hopefully in the future also in how far Spanish uh, intellectuals perceived the role of the Jews in Spanish history and how, um, uh, I mean, in the 20th century, German Jews Focus on that. So I did a little bit uh, of research on that already, uh, but didn't mention it so much uh, in the um, you know, in the book. So this idealization, I think, is something we find in many many cultures. Of course, not only in Jewish culture, um, but it's something which has been, I would argue, up to this point, very much neglected, or at least not really seen in in, in a comparative manner as I did in the book. But also, I mean. Uh, <coughs> Uh, John Efron did in his recent book from uh, this year as well.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating that uh, your book from 2011, just uh, recently uh, translated into English, uh, is here on our um, desks at the same time as John Efron's. And I was curious if t- if there's uh, uh, started a good deal more interest in this subject, or if it was just happenstance. Uh, I mean, for me,
1: as I mentioned in the. Earlier statement. I mean, I had this one sentence in Ernst Toller's autobiography: a socialist, a lefty, uh, who had no connection to Judaism whatsoever. So there's this this one sentence in his autobiography. Well, you can write whatever you want to in your autobiography, I'm sure, and it's all part of your own agenda. But I was impressed by that, and so it never let me go. So when I did all other kind of research, I always had this in mind. That is something I found very much appealing, and I also was a little bit, well, maybe frustrated. I'm not sure this is the right term, but there are very few very good uh, articles on the subject matter. So Ibarian Sephardic history, perception among German uh, Jews in the late 18th and 19th century. But I thought it would be really important to look into all these different kind of material to come up with some kind of a comparative conclusion to find out why did they really look into that. And I mean, there are many differences talking about assimilation, integration, and later Zionists clearly spoke uh, against assimilation and Nordau and others clearly pointed on this. What well, they perceived as a wrong history. The Jews didn't know anything about what is the meaning of being Jewish, they became Christians, they completely assimilated, and then they were kicked out, I mean, I summarize it uh, just that way, and that had a huge impact, I think, also then, on Zionism, I mean, in the perception of uh, assimilation, something very negative, but all in all, there are all these different angles, and popularization, and one could think about English uh, Jewish literature on Sephardic role models and things like that I mean there's so much or in France I mean I cannot talk about it in detail because I'm not the expert so I would hope that much more would come out of uh, the most recent uh, scholarship on the subject matter definitely
0: and yeah, let's let's hope so oh, we, we have a lot of good material in front of us already thanks to your work on this. Um, You note that sources about Iberian Jewish past were available for and influenced a wide swath of German Jewish population, not only the elite. Uh, uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about the popular sources of the subject? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so the popular sources are mainly focused on something which was very um, appealing to readers. Uh, in, in journals, but also uh, among those who subscribed to Jewish book clubs and so on. And that is the idea that, um, usually I did focus on, uh, was presented as an ideal uh, Jewish family life. So uh, the family uh, was able to, uh, stay together even during times of hardship or at least reunite at some point Uh, again, and uh, during all these upheavals, maintain a Jewish uh, identity. So I think that's also, I think, very important because family life, family values are very important during an era in Germany uh, when Jews were not citizens yet. So if you focus on your uh, internal life or dis- uh, read descriptions on uh, well-preserved Jewish family life, that is something you would find in your own household uh, in Germany, hopefully at this time. So then we have very good selling points. There were uh, love stories uh, between uh, two individuals who came together and they were very much also uh, ideas that had a very uh, large, um, I mean, appeal to an audience. They were less scholarly, uh, but always keeping the narrative mainly in mind. I mean, Jews lived during the Iberian Peninsula. What happened to them? And here I also found sometimes more, uh, an emphasis on expulsion and what happened during the, these years of expulsion. Uh, that is something uh, you find and also you find sometimes poems by Philipson himself, who wrote a I think very interesting uh, poem in which he clearly says when uh, the Jews would come back to Spain, then uh, this curse on Spain would also uh, be lifted. and with curse he's basically referring. I'm not on a rebellion curse because I didn't find anything which really speaks to a direct curse in that sense. But I might be wrong. But he more speaks on the fact that in Spain, uh, everything would flourish again if uh, the expulsion would be uh, revoked and everyone could settle there, and also without the pressure of the religion. So religion is also something. uh, It's always. Well taken if it's basically preserving family life from a Jewish perspective, but it's very negative when it's basically trying to interfere with your communal sense. And so this made these uh, novels bestsellers that are also in the romantic style, though well, these adventure novels, uh, Sir Walter Scott is a huge influence also on these German, um, uh, on the, these ger- novels written in German. So, you see there's a, another uh, transnational angle, so the model of uh, romantic novels, uh, adventure novels, for example, by um, Sir Walter Scott. Interesting. Thank you.
0: So the Zionists, um, as you've suggested, uh, perhaps uh, turned this argument on its head or looked at uh evidence that others were ignoring, uh, and saw the Iberian experience, in fact, as proof of the need for a homeland for the Jews.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Do do you want to say a few words about that? Yeah. I mean, again, this is for pragmatic reasons, and not in the English version, but only in the uh, German version. But I think it's very, very interesting, and I really hope to work more on that uh, in in future uh, projects. So the first individual, German not German Jew, but a German Jew, uh, German-speaking Jew, who became one of the most eminent uh, Zionists. Max Nordau actually traveled to Spain in the early 1880s. When he traveled to Spain, he makes us believe in his uh, travelogue that when he came to Spain, he didn't know much about Jewish history, but then he walked on uh, different locations on streets and he saw Hebrew inscriptions And he realized that he was basically walking uh, uh, on a a cemetery. And from here, he started to rethink the Jewish experience in diaspora. And he came to the conclusion in his early writings in the 1880s, well, the only thing that is basically uh, still there from the Jewish um, uh, presence in Spain uh, is, is a dead history. Everything is gone. There's nothing there. Okay. So and then he left that for many years out. But when he gave his first, uh, when he gave his Zionist speeches at the beginning of the 20th century, he always comes back to this idea. And then he uh, uh, mm, uh, uh, described it as a Jewish millionaire in Spain who didn't know much, didn't know what was going on there thought they would be integrated, assimilated, they went to the king's banquets, but then they were finally kicked out. <laughs> and so he's telling that story, mainly of course to Zionists, but hopefully also in his idea, to those Jews who at this point didn't see that Zionism must do much anything, not as price for a modern Jewish life, because assimilation did not work. So that's not something he's encountering while coming to Spain first in the 1880s, but later in his writings, he's always going back to that. Mm-hmm. And he's really the the only one I discussed in my book who actually traveled to Spain. And, um, it's a very interesting read. This, uh, the book is titled by Norda from, um, from the, Kreml the, Alhambra, the Kremlin to the Alhambra, from the Kremlin to the Alhambra. And there's a large portion on, uh, on, on Spain. And I think that is the first encounter for him to rethink, of course, the whole history of uh, Jewish integration uh, during the, I mean, during history, but mainly during the 19th century. And other than most of the individuals in Germany during the 19th century, he clearly opposed that idea later, not during his journey.
0: That's fascinating. Um, among your many interesting observations, you note that German Jews of the past have become models for us today, much like the Iberian Jews were models
1: to German Jews. Um, mm-hmm. could,
0: could you say a few words about that?
1: Well, I, I had mainly, mainly in mind uh, when writing it, I mean, the perspective of the 19th century, so that German Jews at some point believe, well, we are now the new Sephardim. There are even quotations, direct quotations from the text I studied where German Jews saw themselves as new Sephardim. Uh, and that's, I think, uh, part of the self-perception. And of course, later, uh, German Jews were widely perceived as the most enlightened, most integrated uh, Jews, uh, at least in Europe. Mm-hmm. Now, and even when anti-Semitism became so powerful in Europe at the end of the 19th century, I mean, two countries come to mind, of course, France and Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's anti-Semitism in Austria, but this anti-Semitism, I mean, it existed. I don't want to downplay it now, but it didn't have this violent association as uh, anti-Semitism in Russia with the pogroms. American Jewry, I mean, I'm not an expert on that. Uh, I think up to World War One, definitely. I mean, the German Jewish... German Jews were perceived as a role model to some extent, but I think in, in the Americas it already changed uh, by then, and then also the German language, With World War One, is not any longer, uh, I mean, well, appreciated, so to speak, because of the war. Uh, uh, but yes, I mean, definitely this idea, maybe being both being German and being Jewish, but honestly, um, the more I think about American Jewish history, and again, as a non expert, in Germany we have this very strong notion of it's a Christian state, although you would not call it a Christian state. I mean, let's say in the last quarter maybe of the 19th century, but when anti Semitism becomes so powerful, it's mainly not religious anymore, the arguments against the Jews, but there's still this misunderstanding. I mean, how can it be possible that someone is still Jewish, remains Jewish and he's also German. You know, it's a little bit different, I think, in the the United States because of this uh, separation of church and state, I mean, at least in theory and also practice on different layers. In Germany, we don't have that and so that also leads me to my hopefully new project which is, I mean, focusing on the question of loyalty in German-Jewish culture and I would like to understand how loyalty, I mean being loyal to one country, my case study would be Germany, is described in German sources and German-Jewish sources. So did Jews and Germans really talk about the same thing? Well, we might say, no, they did not, and that's true. But I really would like to do something like a close reading of the main debates again and also integrate new material on that, because it started early on as some kind of a Misunderstanding. And when we go into debates today in Germany about immigration, and I don't want to be too general, but I think there are so many similarities that there is still this overall questioning in German culture. I mean, can it really be possible that someone becomes German? You know, he is a German, he speaks German, but he comes from a different place. So I still see many, many uh, remarks. I mean, not only in the political Uh, arena, but from all sides, that I think would make it very uh, important for me as a scholar to go back to the Enlightenment and then into the 19th century to think about the whole complex uh, question of loyalty and the question of loyalty in a culture.
0: Well, that's fascinating, and I and I think Carson, you anticipated my uh, my closing question. We've taken a lot of your time, and I always like to finish uh, podcasts by talking about what you're working on. Uh, is is this exactly what you are working on now?
1: Yeah, that's, that's what I'm currently working that's on. Right. That's uh, the main uh, thing. I would also be interested in doing something more on Zionist and Sephardic Jewry, mainly in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but as far as I can tell right now, there is not a lot uh, of sources I uh, found uh, that speaks to that overall matter. Um, because Jews in the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century were very much perceived through these Oriental lenses, So not so much as ideal mediators in in comparison to this Golden Age in Spain. So it's a little bit more complex, I believe, but also definitely something I would like to at least think about in the future.
0: Well, that's fascinating. And I hope whatever you uh, choose to focus on next that you'll come back to New Books in Jewish Studies and discuss it with us here.
1: Oh, I would be delighted to do, so thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you, Kirsten, for for your time. This is fascinating, and let me recommend to our listeners that they acquire a copy of Role Model and Countermodel, The Golden Age of Iberian Jewry and German-Jewish Culture during the era of emancipation. Thank you so much, and please stay tuned to another issue coming up soon of New Books in Jewish Studies.